Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. All right, when you're done, kids, I want to hear what the best thing in kids' church was. So pay attention. How are my adults doing? Chris is good. They're sleeping. They're not going to be sleeping for long. I have a surprise for you all. How many like surprises? I don't. I don't like surprises. Are you going to stay in and hear me preach? You're the coolest. Okay, so you adults, we are talking today about a rhythm that I love. And in order for you to really let this sink in, we have a gift for you. We have some charcuterie tables in the back. And so right now, right this moment, kids too, you guys may get up and go help yourself to the four tables in the back right now. Go fill your plates. Ready? Go. And then come back to your chairs in a minute. All right. How many of you are thanking Jesus for some charcuterie right now? Yes. I think God's ways are even higher with olives, don't you? I do. Yeah. Okay, y'all are kind of quiet in the house today, um, and I sort of like it when people holler back at me when I preach, um, so we can't have any hangry hearts here today, okay? Um, in case you don't know, hey, Ryan Anderson, are you in the house? Ryan, hey, welcome home from camp. Was it awesome? Okay, so um, Ryan and I serve on the preaching team together, and so recently we did this intensive where we got to encourage each other and critique each other. And Ryan, I heard that you really value it and love it when preachers communicate the meaning of a word. So um, in case you're not familiar with the word hangry, Ryan, it actually means someone exhibiting signs of anger due to hunger. So I know you really value that. Sorry, that's a little teaching team joke at Ryan's expense. Um, But here's the deal, Ryan. I'm actually good friends with your wife. So... As an apology, you can either go get an extra olive or you can just consider it payback for all of the labor and delivery stories you've told about Lauren when you preach. So Lauren may or may not have put me up to that. No, she didn't, actually. She's going to die. He's got olives for you, Ryan. Hey, guys, I grew up with a lot of siblings. I had four brothers. And so whenever we would have a meal, there was always a lot of joking and laughter albeit some of it completely inappropriate, Isaac. Um, But there was always this great amount of laughter. And I have this personal feeling that there should be laughter and joy in church. Yeah? You guys think so? Yeah. So that's why we got you some food and want to just have a good time with you here today. But hey, we're in this series called Rhythms. And it's all about the rhythms in our lives that are so important. Chris kicked off this series last week with a message that I've literally never heard this topic spoken about in church ever. And I've been in church my whole life. Chris talked about sleep. Okay, and so often you hear people talk about like, go do things for God. And Chris talked about sleep and the importance of the rhythm of good, healthy sleep patterns in our lives, both for our physical health, but then also he talked about the biblical context of when God speaks to us in our sleep. And it was so transforming for some people in the church. And we even had feedback from people saying that it had literally changed someone's life. 
So I'm just excited, you guys, because God is really moving here in this church, even when it's one individual at a time, even when a message is for one person. So that's really exciting. But Chris, I would have to say, you reminded me that God has spoken some of his most important words in my personal life when I have been sleeping or when I've been awakened and I've been rested. And so that was really good to remember the importance of that. It prepares us to hear from God. Today, we're actually going to talk about two rhythms. We're going to talk about feasting, thus the charcuterie. Who loves an amazing meal? Yeah. yeah? Who loves just like a quick getaway and you get to get some awesome food and refresh? One of my favorite things. Michaela, you're all about it. So we're going to talk about feasting, and then we're going to also talk about fasting. And I know that um, you might want to just eat your olives before the conviction kicks in today, because then you're going to want to put your plate down and follow the biblical rules of fasting. But um, I'm really passionate about these two topics, because they have transformed my life. And I've seen incredible results in my own life from biblical feasting and from biblical fasting. So we have feasting and we have fasting, two ends of the spectrum, right? Two opposites, really. And yet Jesus exampled to us in the scripture to do both. So first, let's chat about feasting. Why is it important beyond the obvious that it sustains our physical bodies? It gives us energy. It allows us to live. Hosting for me, hosting people in our home has been one of the most important rhythms that Kip and I have ever implemented in our marriage. Because for me, when I host people in my home, when I get to serve them a feast, serve them a meal, it helps me feel connected to people. It helps me feel alive and like we have this community and this unity that happens around a table. And I'm sure some of you have experienced that. But for me, feasting together with people in my home is so important that I would consider it in like the top five of my must-haves for a happy, healthy life. And that might sound extreme to you, but if you've not implemented people being in your home for community and meals, I hope today you leave with an impartation to know that this is something you can implement to create an incredible community in your life. So Kip and I, 16 years ago, 15 years, 15 years ago, we've been married 15 years, we implemented hosting in our home right? I just can't count sometimes. Um, we implemented hosting, and here's the thing. We had no money and a tiny home. We called it our gingerbread house because it was so small. It was less than 700 square feet, and we had a small kitchen and a tinier table, and so we would invite one person at a time to come into our home and to eat a super cheap pasta meal, but we would just pack into my little kitchen, and 16, 15 years later, I'll get it, honey, um, 15 years later, I can still remember some of the conversations that happened around that tiny Walmart super cheap pasta meal. It was really transforming. And so now today, I feel like the price point of getting to host and serve people has changed, but the purpose has remained, and it's just valuing people around our table. Something so powerful happens when you feast with people around a table. Have any of you ever experienced a positive, powerful moment having a meal with your friends? Yes? Chris and Heather have. Anyone else? Okay, y'all are quiet. Hey, guys. Thanks, Dave. If y'all are too quiet, I'm going to think that I love charcuterie and Jesus more than you. 
So come on, let's get our happy hearts on. Okay, this is going to make you excited. Last week, I had one of the most memorable experiences yet at my table. Um, I got to give you a little backstory first, because we had friends at our table, and years ago, I was asked to serve on a church staff, and I was really pumped about it, but the bummer part is that there was no budget to pay me. And so they said, hey, we want you on staff, and can you do it for free? I was like, oh, well, I am newly married, and we have no money and we're paying off college loans. This is not ideal. But I really felt like God showed me that he was going to provide. And so I started praying, and God opened the door for me to start cleaning the home of this really influential couple, this couple in the community that um, really is a powerhouse. And they had this massive home that they were using for God's glory, and she needed a cleaner. And so once a week, I was working like 50, 60 hours a week at the church for free, and so I had really limited time. I couldn't really pick up a job that was more than just one afternoon. And so I would go in once a week on a Friday, and I would clean this massive home for like seven hours. And they paid me really well. It made up for my lack of income in ministry. And so I did this, and I learned this incredible gift of hosting through this couple. They were one of the couples that helped me learn this. They were so generous and so kind. Their kids were grown, but they had this revolving door of people that would come in their homes to be refreshed and rested and feast with them. And they would have people on furlough come in and they would fill their spare bedrooms. And I recall this woman, she would come home while I was finishing the home and her trunk would be full of groceries and she would just pack their refrigerators full of stuff for these people to feast on. And her guest bedrooms were incredible. She had breakfast bars, she had coffee makers, she had all of the things that her guests would possibly need to be comfortable in their home. And I just remember really being impacted by the example they set because although they were super successful monetary-wise, they were even more generous. Their generosity outweighed their income. And I just remember thinking, that I someday wanted to be able to emulate what I was learning from them. Now, I want you to fast forward over a decade to just a few months ago. I hear the Holy Spirit tell me that I'm supposed to reach out to this couple and ask them to partner with Church 214 for Rebuilt. Now, a refresh for you. Rebuilt is our renovation fund. Okay, so we have Oak Street that's been purchased now, and it needs a lot of TLC and a lot of renovations for us to get to move in there. And we've been fundraising, but we cast this vision to you to consider going to people outside of our circles here in this church and ask people to partner with Church 214 to give, and we call that the Cyrus Ask. How many of you remember Chris and Heather talking about that? Yeah. Okay, so I start to feel the Holy Spirit say like, hey, they're your Cyrus. They're the ones that are going to partner with you to give. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't really want to obey that prompting, Lord, because that's awkward. And I don't want, I mean, I know they make good money, and I just don't want to do that. So I sort of just didn't do it. And it didn't work out too great because he kept sort of bugging me about it. And one day, I was driving in my car all alone, and I'm having this outlog dialogue with the Holy Spirit, because you can do that. And I was like, you know, God, I'm really not wanting to reach out to this family. Um, yeah, I just don't want to do that. So if you need me to do that, God, I need you to give me like a super clear, obvious sign that I have to do this. And I'm thinking like he's not going to go out of his way to speak to me about this, so I'm going to be off the hook. And I turn left onto a road, and I look up, and the very first street sign on that road is this family's last name. 
And I'm like, shoot. God. <sighs> so I finally created this little quick video expressing the vision of Rebelt, and I text it to this couple. You know the interesting thing? Hey, Ryan, do you know, I'm gonna pick on you again. <laughs> you got it coming, bro. You have thrown your wife under their bus a few times. Um, right, Lauren? Right. You text me that morning, and you said, Heidi, have you thought about asking this couple to partner with us for Rebuild? And I was like, shoot, Ryan, don't be a butt. You're not working for the Holy Spirit. Stop hearing from God. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about it. He's like, okay, well, if you're not going to, I will. I'm like, God, don't be annoying. <sighs> so anyway, they respond right away, and they're like, yes, we'd love to partner with you. And he said, you know, all of our giving partners are allocated for the next couple years. He said, but we would love to give above and beyond to your church. And I was like, man, that's incredible. So I invited them to come to my home for dinner, bring you to present right now. A couple weeks ago, they come into my home for dinner, and I just wanted to thank them for their generosity. I just wanted to value them. So over the course of a meal, we just caught up about life, and we talked about everything you can imagine, the things God's doing in this area, in this community. And towards the very end of the meal, my precious friend pulls out his checkbook, and he starts to write a check. And he said, Heidi, years ago, I was invited by President Bush to come to his inaugural dinner and ball. And he said, it was a 10000 per plate price. And he said, and I passed because of the cost. And he said, my son came to me and said, Dad, are you for real? Why are we passing on this presidential feast? You're crazy. And he said, son, the cost is $10,000 per plate. Do you really feel like that is the best use of our funds? And he said, no, no, I, I guess it's not. And my friend looked at me as he reached across the table and handed me this check. And he said, Heidi, I feel that the best use to my funds is right here tonight. And he said, so I'd like to pay you $10,000 a plate for tonight's meal. And he handed me a check for $20,000 for Church 214. And I immediately felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I reserved the cost of a president's feast for my church to be rebuilt. Right? And over the course of that two-hour dinner, my friend had doubled his giving amount from what he originally had committed to because he saw the vision of what God was doing at Church 214. He caught it. And I thought that was so powerful and impactful. I want to encourage you guys, if there's someone on your heart that you feel like would maybe like to be included in Rebuilt, ask them. Give them the opportunity to be generous. It's tax-deductible. A lot of people need a write-off anyway, and sometimes they just need an alley, an avenue to get them the opportunity. And we can be those people to give them that opportunity. So just ask them. So here's the point. Something very powerful happens over a meal that's shared with people in the presence of God. And we can't always even know what that's going to be. Acts 2.46 says this. They worshiped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. So this is describing the disciples and the people that surrounded them. They're having meals together daily with great joy and generosity, sharing all that they have with each other. 
Now, in case you're wondering, this is the very first time anyone has ever paid me $20,000 to make them a meal. But if you're, if you're offering, I will make you a meal for 20 grand. That would be totally fine with me. But here's the thing. Thanks, Ike. Here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit told me, hey, host this influential couple, like I didn't freak out. I didn't stress out because I'm already used to the rhythm of hosting people in my home. I've already learned the tips and the tricks and the secrets that I need in my own life to be able to fit it into the busyness of our current life. It's just a simple rhythm. I recently read this book called Love Lives Here. It's by Maria Goff, who is Bob Goff's wife. He calls her Sweet Maria, and I read her book, and I felt like it was a super accurate title for her. But in that book, I picked up this awesome idea, and I love it so much. After someone feasts in our home at our table, I asked them to literally climb under my table. Super awkward. Kip loves this part of the meal. <laughs> and um, I asked them to sign the underneath side of my table. And some people are like, this is sort of weird, and some people think it's really cool. And if you've eaten at my house recently and you've not signed, please sign sometime when you're at my house. Um, but the reason I do this is because it reminds me why we're creating space in our lives at our table. It's to love people. See, people being at my table, it leaves this impression on me, just like those names under my table. It's not always about just serving them. A lot of times I get served right back during the course of that meal. Now, the scriptures are full of examples of feasting. I think the funniest one is, this made me laugh so hard. Genesis 21.8, it says this, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. <laughs> like, in other words, come on, let's celebrate. I get my woman back, right? All you pregnant mamas, all you husbands, you know, you get it. Yeah. All right, there's some more. The Bible often compares feasting to what heaven is going to be like. I think some people get stuck in this rut of like, oh my gosh, heaven's going to be so boring. Like, I can't worship that long. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be charcuterie and olives, and the best days on earth are going to pale in comparison to heaven. It is going to rock. So stop your worrying hearts. It's going to be amazing. But the Bible compares it to heaven. Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west, and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. There's an incredible story that follows that. Check that out on your own, Matthew 22. Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. So there are so many references to feasting in the Bible. I could go on and on and on. But there's also these references that took place over meals with Jesus, and these are my favorite ones. Chris talked last week about Jesus making the disciples breakfast on the beach. He was trendy before that was trendy. But John 21, 12 says, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast that he had prepared for them. How incredible. And then Mark 2, 13 through 17 is where Jesus calls Levi, who we know as Matthew, Matthew the disciple. Let's read this. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again, and he taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me. Be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. 
along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the, religious, when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Yeah. So Levi, Matthew, this disciple of Jesus, he is among the disreputable sinners of that society. And yet he's got the guts to invite Jesus to his home for dinner. And you know why I think Jesus accepts that dinner invite? Because Jesus knows that time spent in Levi's home at his table is going to leave an internal impression on his life. And we know from the scriptures that it did. Time in Jesus' presence left an internal impression on him. One of my very favorite stories of Jesus having a meal with people is in John 12. This is so good. If you're checked out at all, come right now. It's, this is so good. John 12, 1 through 7. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. Come on. And a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. You think? Yeah. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made of essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house filled with fragrance. So we've got to notice this, okay? Martha and Mary are the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus is the man Jesus has raised from the dead. These siblings are Jesus' close, close friends. So he shows up to town, and they're like, oh, my word, we need to honor this we need to honor this act. Our brother has been raised from the dead. I'm going to say that is worthy of a feast, you guys. Um, this makes a lot of sense to me. It says that Mary poured out a year's worth of perfume, a year's worth of wage of perfume on Jesus' feet. And here's the thing. I have got three close friends who have all lost their brothers tragically and I know for a fact that each one of those people, if Jesus showed up and raised their brother from the dead, they would have no expense spared celebrations. They would do, be doing like the whole farm fresh, you know, to the table. Like they would be giving it all for Jesus. They would be buying the best wine. They would be making sure Jesus knew like we are celebrating what you have done in our family. And so these women are going all out to help Jesus know that they are celebrating him. And yet... Though they have this great holy intent, there's this person judging their acts. There's this person going, we don't think they're being, we don't think they have the best interest in mind. Listen to this, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. And you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And here is what caught my attention in that story, you guys. When we serve Jesus in the best of our ability, the best way we know how, he uses it mightily for his glory. Check this out. 
Mary was celebrating the resurrection of her brother, and God used it to prepare for the burial and resurrection of Jesus. So powerful. Mary had no idea what her serving serving was going to accomplish in the spiritual realm, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He said, she's doing this to prepare for my burial. So we must not underestimate the power of meals in our homes. It allows people to experience Jesus and his great purposes beyond our own abilities, beyond our insecurities, beyond us knowing what people need. Jesus comes in when we're just being faithful to serve, and he uses it for his glory. Just a few days ago, I got a text from a really precious woman in this church, and she was texting me about my son Wilder because she's serving in kids' church this week. And through the course of the conversation, I asked her how she was doing, And she sent this response, and I have to read it to you because it's so powerful. I love this so much. She says, I'm really doing well. My heart is so warmed. My girl went to camp this week, and she has text saying how how happy she is that she went, and I am just beaming. God placed her there this year, and I know it. It's like you know he hears our prayers because we have seen miracles. Listen. But... When the miracles hit your dinner table, wow. Yes, yes. Guys, powerful things are happening around the tables in our homes. And we want to invite you into what God is doing. We want to invite you into this rhythm of hosting and feasting with people to create community. Do not miss out on the power of encouraging others at your table. It is so impactful. Um, Just in case you're not going to take my word for it, I thought I would bring up a professional. Um, so Lauren, would you join me on stage? Lauren is, has become a good friend of mine. She's incredible. She is a, she is a peace bringer. Lauren, we're going to sit at my table. Is that okay? So here, have a chair. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Your handsome man was jamming out for us today Uh back here. Yeah. So Lauren's married to Charlie, multi-talented Charlie. (laughs) Um, Lauren, would you just tell our people how we met? Um, so my husband and I, Charlie, we started coming to 214 about six months ago. Yeah. And, um, we met you that first day we visited. And then after that, um, I had reached out to you on social media over something that had just been on my heart and you invited us into your home and we shared a meal together. Yeah. And we became buddies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was really good. Okay. So tell us about your career. Okay. So I am a mental health therapist. Um, I work at a non-for-profit here in Peoria and I work with people, Uh, primarily that have experienced significant trauma. Yeah. Um, How do you feel from your personal experience? Why is it important for people to share meals together at a table in community? Well, in my job, um, community support system, that's pretty much the first thing we assess for because it just tells us so much about what's going to happen in their counseling time. But... Beyond that, um, I was doing some research this week for this because I love research, kind of a research nerd. Yes. (laughs) Um, Give me some research to dig into. But I essentially found that sitting down regularly for meals with your family impacts everything. Hmm. So just to name a few, um, regular meals with family impacts academic scores, language development, weight and nutrition, um, the likelihood of developing a mental disorder like depression or anxiety, the likelihood of developing an addiction, hmm. of engaging in high-risk behaviors. It even, one of the studies I found said it impacts lifespan, 
So if you're regularly sitting down with your family for meals, you're literally adding years to their life. So it's huge. Um, One of the other things I found, too, was that the time spent at a table is um, the amount of words that are exchanged have the highest amount of emotional content. And it's the most amount of words that are exchanged over any other activity in the day, including like playing together as a family or reading books. So that time specifically is really important. Wow. Yeah. I also found some not so great things. Yeah. Um, So I found that only about 25% of families regularly sit down together. Wow. And of those 25% in the past decade, the amount of language that's exchanged during meals has declined by about 30%. Why is that? screens, distractions, life, I think. I mean, lots of reasons. But um, I also wanted to say that when I was researching this, I got a little bit sad Mm. (laughs) Um, because it's hard to read. And I I realized that a lot of people don't have regular access to this. Yeah. Um, So for a variety of reasons, I'm sure there's people sitting here today, even that maybe there's geographical distance between family members, work schedules. Um, I know many strain. Yeah. Yeah. Strain, trauma. Yeah. People that have lost family members that would give anything for that. Um, so that's a hard thing to know, but I also know this from my work that, um, it doesn't have to be biological family. There's lots of definitions of family. Yeah. And, um, the emotional and cognitive, benefits you get from sharing those conversations and those meals with your family, you get the same exact thing. I mean, the same parts of your brain are firing when it's the family that you bring into your life. Yes. The family you choose, your community. Yeah. Yes. So, and like I said, I only met you months ago. Right. Um, and we've shared many meals since. Yep. And I feel like I could look out here today and there's at least 10 people that I could call if I needed something. Oh, I love that. Um, that have become like family to me. And I'm sure there's people I haven't met yet in this church and outside of these walls that will become family to me because family is not static and it shouldn't be. So good. So, um, I mean, last year in my practice, I worked with about 70 people and almost all of them came from homes that were chaotic and not healthy. But I saw so much growth and healing with those people. Yeah. And I think a big part of that was their decision to set aside time in their week and let someone in, a stranger, yes. into their life to share. And I saw even more growth and healing with the ones that took that outside mm. and were engaging more with their community and growing their communities. It's There's just something unspoken about it. That's so cool. Okay. Tell me about the table in your own home. Okay. <laughs> I know this is personal to you. Yeah. So... Um, Five days after, oh, there's a picture of it. Five days after my son was born, or before my son was born, I'm sorry, my husband got back from military duty. So um, while he was gone, I moved into our first home and we didn't have a dining room table. And we had always talked when um, we grew our family how important that was to have that time. And because of his job in the military, we're not in that 25%. We just don't get to sit down regularly together. So we knew that when we did, it was important to have this symbol of that. So he chopped down this tree and let it dry in a kiln for months. Of course course he did. Of course he did, yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) um, 
you know, days after my son was born, he was out there measuring and sanding and assembling this thing. And it's just been this beautiful symbol in our family for the time we have, not just for us, but a reminder of the people we want to bring into our home and hopefully pass this thing on for generations to come for the other people that that will sit at this table. I love that so much. And there's a really cool emblem. Is there? Yeah, I made a, um, there it is. Yeah this plaque on it and let me offer lesson number one about America. All great change in America begins at the dinner table. So Ronald Reagan, that's so good. I love that. Yeah. He did a good job. So (laughs) Lauren, thank you for sharing. Yeah. This has been really helpful, really beneficial. Now I know for some of you that might sound like, um, you get it. Like that sounds maybe basic or like this is beneath you. But I think that we need reminded of the power of it because we are in this rhythm of life where we are all so busy and we are so distracted doing all of the things. And I know for some of you, you might have to make adjustments in your schedule in order to make space for people to be in your home or to make space for you. If you don't have a home and you can't create community at your table, invite people to a restaurant and do community around a restaurant table. It doesn't have to be your physical home, but this is so important. Some of you might not be able to let your kids do the travel team because it will take you out of the game of connecting with people. So just really evaluate your schedules and go, how do I make this work? I know my sweet friend Marjan, she does this so beautifully. She is consistently having people in her home and she is not even from our country. She is what we would consider the guest of our country, and yet she is the one pulling people in constantly, connecting with them. I love that so much. So you're going, okay, what are the practical tips to make this fun? Because you could be like, I hate hosting, and I need this to be fun. So here are some really quick practical tips. Include your kids in meal prep, okay? This might give you a little bit of anxiety, so just calm the nerves, and it doesn't have to be chopped perfectly. You're going to be amazed how easily your kids feel valued when you pull them into the kitchen with you. I know that for me, when I pull my son Crosley into the kitchen and he starts chopping tomatoes for me, just the outpour of his heart and the conversation that happens is priceless. And it's some of my favorite times in the whole world. Cros, I didn't ask you if I could tell this, so I hope it's okay. But the other day he was making pancakes and he said, you know, when I was five, I didn't really do much cooking. And he says, I highly regret that. So cool. Next, um, engage your kids and your spouse or your community, your friends, at your dinner table. Create conversation. In our home, every time we sit down at a meal, I ask our kids this, what was the best thing about your day? And then they start to tell us the funniest, most hilarious stories about the things they thought were so fun and so funny. And it almost always has to do with tooting and pooping. And it creates so much laughter. And it's so good. So just engage your kids or your spouse in conversation. The third tip is keep it simple. Okay, your meal does not have to be perfect to be successful. I used to think my house and my meal and my family had to be in perfect order for people to come in, and God started to break me of that. I promise you, your family and your guest would far rather you be a happy, laid-back host than an uptight host with this perfect meal. Okay, so just keep it simple. Do something really simple that you're comfortable with. Because intentional meals in your home is going to strengthen your family unit. 
I promise you, this will not return void to you. It gives you and your kids the stability for your day, for your life, and it gives you a place to refresh. So don't neglect it. Something so powerful is happening at the tables when chairs are being pulled up to feast together in community, and I want you to be a part of that. I can't help but think that the reason Jesus so often taught his greatest lessons around a feast at a table is because he knew that when our bodies are nourished physically, we are more likely to retain spiritual nourishment as well. I used to do inner city ministry, and I know for a fact that if I had just gone out and knocked on someone's door and said, hey, I want to teach you about Jesus, there would have been this block because the person I was talking to was physically hungry. And so we started by feeding them. We started by showing up with a bag of groceries on Saturday morning and saying, here, let us nourish your body first, and then we're going to tackle your spiritual body. So Jesus knew this powerful rhythm of feasting. Okay, is everyone done with your charcuterie? Okay, y'all are making me hungry watching you eat that. Um, We're going to talk about the rhythm of fasting. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach the value of fasting. And fasting is simple. It's just abstaining from food or drink, whatever you've decided to abstain from, and um, focus on prayer and focus on God. Now, there are many people in the Bible that talked about, or stories that are about people fasting. And we see that in these stories that God grants this supernatural revelation and wisdom because of fasting. He speaks through the practice of fasting. Scripture tells us that fasting will help us grow a more intimate relationship with Jesus, and it will literally open our eyes to what he wants to teach us in that season. So here are some biblical examples. Exodus 32, 28, it tells us of Moses fasting for 40 days, and then he gains divine revelation for the Ten Commandments. It says this, Moses remained there on the mountain with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And in all that time, he ate no bread and he drank no water. And the Lord wrote the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on the stone tablets. Then in Joel, chapter 2, starting in verse 12, we see this call to repentance and fasting. This is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothes in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate. He is slow to get angry, and he is filled with unfailing love. And I know for me, when I've walked through seasons of repentance, the outpour of my grief over my sin is things like weeping and fasting. Because I know that through me tearing my heart open and letting God heal and letting me go through repentance, that he is doing something in me that I could never accomplish on my own. Then in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah has just received news that the Jews who had returned from captivity, they're not doing well. And the walls of Jerusalem are falling down. They're being torn down and the gates are literally Um, in flames. They're being destroyed by fire. And he said, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah starts to fast and pray about this news he's received. 
And then he makes this incredibly bold request to God after, note that, after he has fasted. Verse 5 of Nehemiah 1 says this, And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I, I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. So Nehemiah is reminding God of what he himself has spoken towards his people. The people you rescue by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today and make the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. And what I see from this passage, you guys, is that fasting creates boldness within us before God. Nehemiah experienced this incredible boldness to go before God and to ask some really bold statements of the maker of the universe. He had fasted before this boldness welled up within him. I know this in my own life in a really personal manner. Um, a year and a half ago, we moved to a different home. And for reasons we're still unsure of, it created the most severe reaction in our three-year-old son. He was three at the time, three and a half. And Wilder, who was normally joyful and so happy and so jolly, became just drastically changed in his personality. He began acting out in the most irrational ways. He would um, just have these extreme experiences of rage where he would go and try to climb walls, like claw at walls and rip apart pillows. It was the strangest thing. He had extreme separation anxiety from me. So like if I even left a room of our home, he would just freak out like he was being attacked, let alone if I left the house. It was horrible. It was the worst experience, aside from my firstborn being in the hospital as an infant, it was the worst experience parenting that we've gone through yet. And there were times that I was so stressed and I was so done with the countless attacks, like 12 times a day this would be happening, extreme rage, that I would just call my mom or my sister in tears and I would say, you have to come get him. I cannot physically do this anymore. My hair was falling out in chunks. I had physical bald spots on my head from the stress. And I remember meeting with our physician, and I wept in his office. And I said, I am so distressed about this that I don't even like being his mom. And that was hard to admit because my kids have a huge part of my heart. And my husband and I would pray out loud over Wilder in the middle of these extreme outbursts, and we would speak the name of Jesus, and it would get worse. His body would just convulse under our prayers, and it was horrible, wasn't it, babe? It was horrible. It affected our entire family, not just the five of us. It affected the whole family. And about, I don't know, three and a half, four months in to this horrible experience, I felt the Holy Spirit whisper, 
that I needed to fast for Wilder's healing. And that same day, two women texted me and said, hey, we really feel strongly that part of the key to this breakthrough for Wilder is you fasting. And I was like, okay, God, you use that to confirm what I needed to do. And so due to some of my own health struggles, I couldn't fully fast food. So I decided to fast all forms of sugar. And when you're a busy full-time mama, you know, like, that's difficult. You drive through Chick-fil-A and everything's got sugar in it. You drive through Starbucks, everything's got sugar in it. So this was a sacrifice on my part. But I said, God, I'm going to fast this completely until this struggle has breakthrough. And so for seven weeks, I fasted sugar fully. It was hard. And the struggle worsened. And I was about ready to give up. But at the end of the seventh week, five months into the battle, I was desperate. And my son had had a major meltdown. So I'm holding him in his bed and he's sobbing and drooling everywhere. It was horrifying. And he finally falls asleep. And I feel this extreme boldness rise up within me. And I just, he finally falls asleep. And I said, Jesus, you have to show me what this is. And clear as day, I heard the Holy Spirit say, it's food dye. And out loud, with my children asleep in the room, I said, what? Food dye? God, that makes no sense. Like, we eat pretty healthy. And then I felt him remind me and prompt me about the activities that had happened that day. And he had been given a, a red cupcake and some Gatorade. And then after that, he had an extreme meltdown that lasted for four hours. And so I went downstairs and I told Kip, I said, this is what I just heard. This might be crazy, but this is what I heard. And he starts to research. And Wilder had every single symptom of food dye intolerance, also known as food rage. And what we didn't know is that when we moved in, our sweet little neighbor boy was offering him Gatorades when they were riding their bikes. And he was taking in a lot of Gatorade that I didn't know about. And he was having these extreme triggers happening in his little body. And for whatever reason, our move triggered this reaction. And that next morning, we eliminated food dye, and he was a totally different little boy. Back to his normal self. Like, it was miraculous. It was night and day, wasn't it, guys? It was night and day. Unbelievable. And here's what I learned. I don't know why God allowed us to walk through that battle, that trial, I would call it. It was bad. I felt like I was face down in the dirt of hell and yet still having to carry on and help lead the church and help podcast and do all the things that I'm called to. But God taught me the power of fasting. He taught me the power of sacrificing something to seek his face. Because every time I wanted sugar, I would go, that's right, I'm believing for Wilder's healing. And I would go to God and I would ask the Lord for his healing. So I believe that fasting enables our ability to clearly hear God's voice. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16, he said, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. Jesus expected us to create a rhythm of fasting in our lives. So here we have today, feasting and fasting, two ends of the spectrum. I believe that fasting connects us, I'm sorry, I believe that feasting connects us to people. I believe that fasting connects us to Jesus. When we have these healthy rhythms of feasting and fasting, I think that we're able to see people and Jesus as God intended. 
As we close, I want to talk about the most influential meal that Jesus ever shared with people in all of Scripture, and it was the Last Supper. So Jesus knows that his death is approaching, and he knows that one of his disciples is going to betray him at his own table. And yet he still invites Judas to the table that night. Jesus still serves Judas communion that night. So Jesus is feasting with a man who will betray him after he's walked this earth and done ministry with him. And I feel someone here needs reminded today, I feel very strongly in the depths of my heart that someone needs to know that even though you've walked through hell, maybe you're still sitting present in the sin that is entangling you. Jesus is still calling you to the table today. Jesus still wants you to feast with him. Jesus still wants your presence in his presence. Probably now more than ever. Jesus looks at you and he says, this is my body. This is broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. We're going to take communion together. And I believe fully that Jesus wants to find you at his table today. So I want everyone to just close their eyes for a moment. And I want you to have an experience in communion unlike anything you've ever experienced. So right now, I want you to just picture. I want you to picture Jesus. I want you to picture his gentle nature and his kind and loving eyes. And I want you to actually picture him meeting you at your table and smiling at you. And then I want you to picture him pulling the chair out for you at the table of his father's house. Because see, so often in scripture, it was at the table where people truly found Jesus. It was the table that opened the eyes of people to the truth of who Jesus is. And so today, communion is going to be twofold. It's going to be about us remembering Jesus And the fact that he loves us so much to pour out his blood and sacrifice his body for us. But it's also going to be about people getting healed and being found. It's going to be about your life being transformed. And just like my guests write their name on the underneath side of my table, I want you to picture Jesus right now bending down and writing his name on the table of your heart. Saying, I am marking you. I am leaving my impression on you today that you can be changed for eternity. All right, you can open your eyes for a moment. Um, Right before service, Blake came up to me. And if you're not familiar with this, um, in this word, we do believe that God gives inspired words of knowledge. And Blake came up to me and she shared this word of knowledge that she felt the Lord wanted to accomplish today. And I said, I think you need to give it. And she was like, okay. So, Blake, would you share what God showed you today? So, during worship, there was a heaviness in the room that I couldn't ignore. And I felt like it was the Holy Spirit telling me something for a few individuals in this room in particular. I don't know who you are, but you know who you are. And I just pray that you open your ears to hear this. Um, I believe that there are some people that are slaves to food in this room. And I get emotional because someone that I dearly love is a slave to food. 
And I believe there are people in this room, whether they're sitting here today or somebody that you know personally, who either suffers from an eating disorder of some variety and is a slave to their food, or somebody who has a dietary allergy that is so severe that it causes them to be slaves to the food that they eat and it makes them physically ill. And I know that there are people in here, most of us probably know somebody who suffers from one of those two things. And as Heidi was preaching on feasting and fasting, the Lord said, if you ha have those chains of slavery attached to you, you won't be able to come up to the table and feast. So I want, um, if you know somebody who suffers from an eating disorder of some variety or somebody who has trouble with food, whether it's a mental trouble or a physical trouble, I just want you to open your hands. And if you are that person, I also want you to open your hands because the Lord wants to release healing over you. And the Bible calls the Lord Jehovah Rapha, and that means in Hebrew that he is our healer. He is the great physician. And just like Heidi said, Jesus surrounded himself with sick people because he wanted to make them well. And I believe the Lord wants to make a few of you well in here today. So please just open your hands if you feel like that's what you need to do to receive either the impartation of healing for somebody else in your life or if you yourself need to receive the healing, open your hands as that act of courage and release and surrender, and I'll pray over you now. And if you have somebody next to you who you know is struggling with this, please just lay your hand on them as an act of support and encouragement. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you see each person in here. You see their desire for wellness and health. You see the sickness that is inside of them, Lord. And we choose, not to, we choose not to put weight on the chains, Lord, or on the sickness, but we put weight on your healing and on your authority and power. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name that we would use this authority to make people well, and that you would get all of the glory. Lord, I pray right now that chains of slavery to food would fall off of individuals in this room, and that you would impart the gift of healing to people in this room who know somebody who needs to be set free from this bondage, whether it is mental or physical, Lord. I ask for freedom with the authority of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of each of us, God. I thank you so much. I see this massive feast and all of these open chairs that are sitting empty because people are stuck in their chains. Father, we break those chains off in the name of Jesus and we release joy and fullness and healthfulness over people right now. Where there was once despair and hopelessness, Lord, we release joy and freedom in the name of Jesus. Where there was once hunger, we release feasting and fullness, Lord. 
Where there was once emptiness, Lord, fill that space with your spirit. Where there was pain, Lord, we release that pain and we set it at the foot of the cross because the blood of Jesus covered it all. And when you raised from the dead, you defeated every sickness and every illness of the mind and the body. And we thank you for that victory, Lord. We thank you for your healing. And we sit at the table, Lord, and we feast with you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Blake. All right, so we're going to worship. Have one last song. And I want to invite you to the table of communion. They're on each sides of the room. And I just want you to dismiss yourself and have a moment with Jesus and feast with him. Picture him pulling out that chair for you. And so let's dine with Jesus and remember the sacrifice of who he is to us. Just sung what we just sung. I felt the Holy Spirit say, yes, there are chains that have been broken today. There are chains that have been broken today. I think some of you felt that. And you just sung it. That shame and guilt are no longer part of your life. And I believe there's some of you that have, that have been a slave to food or a slave to alcohol or some other eating disorder. And that was just broken in this moment just now. I want you to receive this word from Revelation. This is what Jesus says to, to you in this moment. Just focus on him in this moment. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open that door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious, that's you. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Jesus, we just thank you for what you've done today. What the enemy meant to hold us back has been turned around for good. And the celebration of food can now happen at the table of grace in our lives because shame and guilt over those things are now broken. And we can celebrate with true fasting because fasting is just feasting in your presence. Fasting is just feasting in your presence. It's where we say we don't choose anything but you, Jesus. We choose all of you. We choose all of your table of grace. We sit down at your table and you say come and dine. And we say yes to you. We feast and we fast at your table, Jesus. And we receive this word today. And we see the chains lying on the floor. And we say thank you, Jesus. And so we walk from this place today in victory in the presence of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. That's a good day. That's a good day.